Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Thank you, Ray. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace Covenant Church. And uh, I'm grateful to Matt for the invitation to come back to Austin and uh, to be in his church and Christ Church and be a blessing to you this morning. And, and I just want to say before we get started, um, you need to be encouraged as a church that you have an extraordinary team of people that represent Grace Covenant Church. I've been so blessed uh, to, uh, to interact with Jane Coble and with uh, uh, Buddy McNeese and with Ray and with Jonathan and Troy and Ken and Mike Gould and all these folks that have been so hospitable to me. And you need to know that this team represents Christ Church really well in Austin. You should be very, very proud of them. I'm also grateful for uh, the investment that Grace Covenant made many, many years ago in my children. My two boys who are now in college uh, actually were in classes here at Grace Covenant Christian School. I, I think about where the welcome desk is. That's where their class was. And um, they're still walking with the Lord, so things are going great there. Hey, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom of worshiping you today. Thank you for this team that has overflowed with worship to lead us and show us what it means to take us to your throne and show us what it means to worship the living God, and we've done that today. And now, God, as we've spoken to you, we, we wait for you to speak to us. We open up your word, and we pray that you, would, that you would open our minds and that you would move in our hearts and that you would lead our lives to greater affections and appreciation for who you are and what you do. And so we commit our time to you. Thank you that your word is like a fire. It's like a hammer that, that breaks rocks and opens and changes people's lives. And we just invite you now to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have ever read the book or read your book yourself or maybe you read it to your children or your grandchildren of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. You read that book? It's a great book. It's a story, if you've never heard it before, you've never read it before, it's a story of a little boy by Alexander, and he has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. From the moment he wakes up, uh, he wakes up in the morning and he has gum in his bedhead. Uh, he trips over the skateboard on the way to the bathroom and drops a sweater right in the sink. He has to sit in the middle seat in carpool instead of on the sides where the windows are, and when he gets to school, he sings way too loudly in, in, in choir. His mom doesn't pack enough dessert in a sack lunch. Uh, he gets his foot caught in an elevator door. When they go shopping for shoes, the shoe store doesn't have his color. His mama prepares lima beans for dinner. Uh, there's kissing on TV, and he has to wear his railroad pajamas to bed. And then when he does go to bed, the nightlight doesn't work next to his bed. Uh, he bites his lip as he jumps into bed, and the cat wants to sleep with his brother. It is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day from start to finish. And the conclusion of this little boy, Alexander... The conclusion is that when you have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, you need to move to where? Australia. That's the solution. Australia is the answer to everything, isn't it? And I wonder, if I, as I read this book to my kids, I thought to myself, I said, who writes a book like this to children? I mean, what's the message of this book to kids? And I think the message is to teach your children that no matter how bad life is, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Actually, I don't think that's the message. I don't think that's the message of the author. But I think the reason that Judith Borst wrote a book like Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day is to teach kids that along the way in life, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be challenges. 
I mean, Jesus said it himself. He warned his disciples before he ever set them loose. He said, in this world, you will have many troubles. But take heart, I've already overcome the world. And I suspect, as a pastor, just kind of looking in the faces of people I don't know, one thing I do know is that you, some of you walked in the back doors and you sat down this morning, and you are in the middle of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, or bad week, or bad month, or year, or something. Something is going on in life, and if, if it's not true of you now, it will be true of you tomorrow or next month or sometime soon, because that's just that's the reality of, of life, Right? I suspect there's some of you here that are, that are in the middle of some marriage crises or financial, you know, you're upside down financially in your life, or maybe you've discovered that there's a sickness, you've been trying to beat it, and now the doctor says it's even worse than he, than he suggested it at first. Or maybe your kids are kind of going off, the, you know, off to the side, and you're trying to get them to go straight and narrow, and they're heading out over here. And, and, and you would say, if you were honest, if you looked around to your friends today, you would say, can I just be honest with you? I mean, a lot of life is good, but there's a part of life in, that is terrible, no good, and very bad. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, if, I can, if, if it's okay with you here for just a minute, if, if you would just dare to be honest this morning, can I just, would you raise your hand? If you'd say, you know, I, 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 I kind of get that. That's in my life right now. I can say that there's a piece of terrible, horrible, no good, and very bad in my life. Would you raise your hand? Wow, that's great. I mean, that's not great, but that's, that's great that you were honest, but it's just the reality of life. And can I say to you that God has prepared a message for you that might set you back on your heels? Because I want to tell you that while your temptation, my temptation, is to move to Australia, to run from the terrible stuff of life, God's Word has a much better solution. And so I want you to open your Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, and we'll see a text on the screen in just a moment, uh, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, which might be one of the most sobering and uh, authentic books in the Bible to really get at real life if you've ever read Ecclesiastes. And I came to this verse several years ago. My father was in a Bible study uh, down at Cedar Creek Lake, and he invited me to his men's Bible study. And the purpose of this Bible study was stump the pastor. It was actually called ask the pastor questions, but I'm pretty sure it was stump the pastor. So when we got finished eating our pizza and we opened up the word, we had a little prayer, and then I said, okay, what questions do you have? Come on, bring on the questions. And the first man raised his hand. He said, I got a question. I said, okay. He said, if God is so good, why is there so bad in the world? I hated that man. I thought, really, couldn't you start with something easy, like how many books are in the Bible or, you know, who wrote Genesis or something like that? But his question is the question that so many people want to know. And to answer his question, I took him to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Listen to this verse, okay? You ready for this? you got to, get, you got to buckle up for this verse this morning. This is what the Word of God says. Verse 13, consider what God has done. Consider what who has done? God. Thank you. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. And therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Well, there you go. What do you think about the Word of God today? Hey, listen. This is going to encourage your socks off because I want to show you four movements from this text that will encourage you, especially if you are in the middle of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season of life right now. 
The first thing that we see in this passage, the first movement is the movement of reflection. It's the movement of thoughtfulness. It's reflection. You see, when I face trauma in my life or you face tragedy in your life, those traumas and tragedies, the chaos of life has a way of kind of bringing to light what it is we really believe, right? It's during the crises of life that, are, that what we think in our heads and what we feel in our hearts really come to light. I had a friend several years ago who's, uh, he and his wife delivered a baby. She just actually delivered the baby. He, he passed out. But, no, but, but in the delivery of this baby, they discovered, and they hadn't known it before, they discovered that this child had severe medical problems. And he said to me after the fact, he said, David, it was in the hospital room that I discovered what kind of theology I really have. It was in the hospital room that I, I really had to wrestle with, what do I believe about God and a God who is supposedly in control of the world? And the truth of the matter is, when we face crisis in life, that's often the time that people not only discover what they believe, but they discover that what they believe is not true at all. People say some of the craziest, strangest things in the middle of crisis. I was at a funeral. I was, I was conducting a funeral one time, and, and there was a young girl, a young lady there whose granddaddy had died quite prematurely as far as grandfathers go, okay? And, uh, and she stood up and she said, it's okay that grandpappy died because God needed another angel in heaven. I've never come so close to standing up in the middle of a memorial service and yelling saying, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. If you start any sentence with God needed, it's going to be wrong whatever comes at the end of it because God doesn't need anything, right? But in the middle of crisis, sometimes our, our, our beliefs and our ideas about what's true and right and good just kind of get turned over on their head. So when we're in the middle of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, sometimes we end up with terrible, horrible, no good, very bad theology. And that's the reason that Solomon says, consider this. Uses that word two times in this passage. Consider this. That doesn't mean just kind of give thought to what I'm telling you. The word consider means to study, to pause, exhale, stand back, take a look at things, gather, your, gather the big picture. And it is a great time that in the middle of whatever it is that you're facing right now, not to react, but to reflect. Not to react, not to impulsively react and get busy and try to fix things. And, but just, it's a great time to kind of stand back and go, what's going on here? There's two great questions you can ask. God, what are you doing? God, who are you and what are you doing? Who are you, God? Who are you? What do I know to be true about God? Because right now the circumstances are going to turn that over. So i got to stop and consider what do I know to be true about God? Do you know what I'm talking about? And then, God, how do you operate? What can I trust you to do? What's true about how you work? And you know the best place? You know the best place to find the answer to those questions is in the Word of God. I mean, honestly, you go to the Word of God and you begin to read the stories of people in biblical history that face the same kind of stuff you and I face, maybe in a slightly different way, but they have succeeded or they have failed, and they give us principles, godly principles, to be able to stand back and answer and adjust and come to grips with what we really believe as we reflect on spiritual truth. So, friends, let me tell you, when you are in the midst of it, when you are facing your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, it is, it's, it's time to just stop, just stop 
to consider, to question. Question God. You can do that. He can handle that. God, what's going on? I don't understand. Tell me what you're doing. I need to get my bearings here. A time of reflection. Now, the moment you begin reflecting, you're going to come face-to-face with a reality. This is the second movement of this passage. You're going to come to face with a sober reality. In fact, Solomon in this passage actually highlights two realities in this passage. He uses verse 13, and he says this, "'Who can straighten what he,' he's speaking of God here, "'what he has made crooked.'" Now, there's two realities I want you to grab onto today as you think about this one verse. Here's the first reality, okay? You ready? Y'all ready for this? God makes crooked stuff. I'm going to let that sink in for just a minute. God makes crooked stuff. He makes good stuff, straight stuff. He also makes crooked stuff. That's what the verse says, that God makes crooked stuff. That's not a moral statement. Let's be clear about this. It's not a moral statement because morally we know that God is good, He's holy, He's pure, right? He's right, He's just, He only, He is in Himself the model of perfection. In fact, Job, or in Job chapter 8, verse 3, the Bible says this, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And the answer is, of course not. God doesn't per- pervert. He doesn't twist things that are right. He never does that. But church, listen to this. When you and I are heading straight away, right down the road, and suddenly life throws us a curve, who's in it? God is. He has to be. Let, let me explain. Let me explain. Give you an example. A couple of years ago, my then 20-year-old son had all his wisdom teeth taken out. It was traumatic not only for him but for the rest of the family. And so you wonder, God, what's the deal with wisdom teeth? You know, why do, why do some people have impacted wisdom teeth have to take them out? So a couple of weeks before his surgery and a very large deductible, we, um, our family was visiting the Perot Museum of Natural Science and History in Dallas. Beautiful museum. We're walking through. We're learning all about the earth and the world we live in. And this is a true story. I come around a wall, and there is a display on teeth. Okay? And there's actually a little placard that explains wisdom teeth. I said, Grant, come here. Come here. Telling you about us, your teeth. Come here, come over here. So he and I, my son and I, stood there and we read all about wisdom teeth. And according to the Perot Museum of Natural Science and History, um, uh, human beings billions of years ago had longer jaws and extra molars in order to be able to eat the raw meat and the tough roots. But, but over the course of evolutionary history, human beings now have much shorter jaws and they need fewer molars because they eat things like salad and couscous and, and hummus, especially in Austin, okay? So you don't have to worry. You don't need as many molars, right? You got that? And so I'm sitting here and I'm reading this and I'm wrestling in my mind because I'm thinking, okay, I have two options right now to explain the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad teeth that my son has. Either my son is, a, is, the, is, a, is the accident of billions of years of evolution in which God doesn't even enter into the picture, or, or in Psalm 139, 
that says my son was fearfully and wonderfully made, that God didn't just make his blonde hair and good looks. God made his teeth. And God made his wisdom teeth. You believe that? He made his wisdom teeth. You see, I think we have an upside-down view of sovereignty. When we talk about sovereignty, we throw the word around sovereignty around. We have an upside-down view of sovereignty. Because sovereignty means that God is not sovereign just over straight teeth. God is sovereign over all teeth, including the wisdom teeth that need to be pulled out, right? You see, we have a, we have a strange view when difficulty happens. We think about sovereignty, whether or not God is involved in things. Here's what happens. Something terrible happens. Sometimes we call it an act of God. Something terrible happens. And the minute that it happens, many times Christians scuttle God away from the scene of the crime. We protect him, right? We said to people, God wasn't involved with that because we want to make sure that we insulate God from any misunderstanding, insulate God from any accusation, insulate God from any liability. So we protect God so that God is in no way, he no way, nobody can ever point a finger at God and say, well, how did God let this tornado blitz through Arlington? How in the world did that happen? But see, in doing that, we have misunderstood the sovereignty of the sovereignty of God. Because the truth of the matter is that sovereignty is not when life gives God lemons, he makes lemonade. That when God is sitting on his throne and he turns around and discovers, oh, look what happened. That he manages to just kind of make the best of terrible circumstances. That's not sovereignty. That's passivity. We quote Romans 8, 28. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and call according to his purposes. Right? Have you heard that verse before? We know that God does that. And we translate that verse this way. We know that in all things, even the things that God didn't count on but happens to notice behind his throne, that God has the ability, though he rolls his eyes, to roll up his sleeves and actually make something good out of this terrible thing that has happened. That's how we translate that verse. Sovereignty, my friends, doesn't mean that God's surprised, that he makes the best of what's given to him. Sovereignty means that in God's economy, nothing is accidental. Nothing surprises him, and nothing is left to chance. So good things and bad. God has made one as well as the other. He's sovereign. He's not just passive. He's actively sovereign over everything in the world. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 45, 7. God says through the prophet, I form the light and I create the darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Who does all these things? The Lord. How many of the things of life does God, does the Lord do? He does them all. God's in the crooked stuff. Now, before you pack up your Bible and leave, never to invite the pastor back again to speak, let me highlight a second reality. It's this. You and I can't figure it out. We can't make sense of it. You're sitting here right now going, who invited this guy? Really? 
mean, our church was doing so well until that Sunday in 2014 where everything just fell apart. Here's the point. You're tr- here's what's going on in your mind. You're trying to make sense of this, right? And Solomon says, you can't do it. He says, who can straighten what he has made crooked? Now, I think when Solomon talks about who can straighten, I don't think he means who can kind of clean up what God has made a mess of. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he means in your mind. Who can straighten, who can make sense of the things that God does that kind of cause us to cock our head and go, I, I, doesn't make, I don't get that. I don't get that. And here's the dilemma that we're facing sitting right here as you hear this sermon. Here's the dilemma. We know on the one hand that God is what? Holy, good, perfect, loving, just, righteous. We know that about God, don't we? Amen? Can we affirm that? Amen. But then on the other hand, we look and we say, nothing catches God by surprise. He's sovereign. And sovereignty is not just he knows everything that takes place, but he actually rules over everything that takes place. Agreed? Can we agree? Okay. So on the one hand, I've got a God who's loving and holy and good. And on the other hand, I've got a God who's sovereign over all things. And bad things happen in the world. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take the holiness and the goodness and the perfection of God, and I'm trying to put it together with the fact that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things happen and yet leave God not responsible for those things, but author of those things. I'm trying to, can you, can you, anybody fit those things together? The word for you today is antinomy, okay? Use that at a party later this week, antinomy, antinomy. Let me explain this word. It's two parts, anti, which means against, and nomos, the Greek word for law. In our Old Testament, we have a book called the Deuteronomos, the second law, right? Deuteronomy. Antinomy means that which appears against the law, the laws in our head, the laws in our heart. That's what antinomy is. Let me give you a better definition. Antinomy is the appearance of contradiction, not a true contradiction, just the appearance of contradiction between two conclusions when each conclusion seems logical, reasonable, necessary, and true. So here's what happens. I turn my back to this side, and I look at this conclusion, and I go, I agree with that. Then I turn my back to that conclusion and look at this conclusion, and I say, I agree with that. The problem is when I step back and look at both, and I try to bring them together, and I can't make them come together. And there are several antinomies of the spiritual life. One is the Trinity. Church, I need you to be awake right now. Do we believe that there is one God? Amen. Do we believe that that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. One God, three persons. I can't make that fit. You can't come up with an illustration in real life to make that fit. It just doesn't work. How about the incarnation of Jesus? Okay. Was Jesus fully God? Fully God, right? He worked miracles. He spoke with authority. He rose from the dead. Jesus is God. Was Jesus perfectly human? Yes. He was born. He breathed. He wept. He slept. He ate. He bled and he died. He was perfectly human. 
And so I have a Savior who is fully God and perfectly human, and I try to bring those things together, and I can't do it. I can't make sense of that together. I believe it, but I can't make sense of it. Agreed? Is God holy and just and righteous and good? Yes. Is He sovereign over everything in the universe, not just the good stuff? Is He sovereign and on His throne for everything in the universe? Yes. So when I look at a tornado that blitzes through uh, uh, Arlington, Texas, or, or leukemia in a friend, and I look at the goodness and the holiness and the perfection of God who is sovereign on His throne, and I try to pull these two things together, I can't make sense of it, and you can't either. Here's the good news. Solomon says, that's okay. It's okay. Just a tension in life. Not supposed to figure it out. I'm not even sure when we stand in the presence of God, it'll all make sense. It's a tension that we're allowed to live with in the spiritual life. It's just one of those realities. So what do we do? If we reflect and we consider and we step back and we try to make sense of it, but the reality is that it's hard to make sense, what is the response? That's the third movement of this passage. What kind of response are we to have when we face various circumstances in life? Well, I think there's two responses that Solomon gives us in this passage that that are good responses for God's people. The first response that he gives is that we should rejoice in prosperity, right? We should capitalize on the good times. In fact, if you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find a constant theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, listen, if God gives you good food and he gives you good drink and he gives you good weather and he gives you a good job, enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Eat the good food, drink the good drink, Dance the good dance. I can say that because you're not Baptist. You know, you can... You know, <clears throat> if God gives you something good, then do the good thing because it's from God. And I'll tell you, as we move into a Thanksgiving week, as we, as we thank the Lord, we, we, you know, sometimes we thank the Lord in strange ways. My kids pray, Lord, thank you for this meal, and now keep us safe. I said, do you know what you just said about your mother's cooking? You know, sometimes we thank God in the strength. You know, thank you for the big things. You know, thank you for the job. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my wife. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Your cell phones half the time are a gift. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Thank you, for thank you for electricity. Thank you for air conditioning. God, thank you for a car to be able to get to my job. Lord, thank you for my job. Lord, thank you. It, it is good, as Ray said this morning, it's good to just count our blessings one by one. You can't out-thank God. You can't outdo it. Just, Lord, thank you for everything. When times are good, be happy. Rejoice in prosperity because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, can't do you? You don't. When times are bad, what do you do? If you rejoice in prosperity, you remember, you rest, and you remember in adversity. That's what Solomon's telling us here. He doesn't come, come right out and say it in verse 14. He doesn't say, I want you to rest, I want you to remember. But he says, I do want you to remember that God has made one as well as the other. I want you to have confidence, and I want you to be confident that God is fully in control. A lot of times we're tempted to resist the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, right? We're tempted to run to Australia. We tend to avoid them, push them back. 
just have nothing to do with them because nobody wants to have their house burglarized or their car repair, you know, needing repair or their kids not being able to get into the college of their choice. They're, nobody wants that. But Solomon says, listen, when those things happen, you can count on this. God's at the helm. He's in control. I mean, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible that points to the sovereignty and the control of God in the midst of the worst of circumstances is, is in Genesis chapter 50. You remember when Joseph woke up, had a dream, put on his coat, told his brothers, they sold him into slavery, he went to Egypt, he got falsely accused, thrown into prison, and was raised back up. And while he's standing with his brothers at the end of this, looking back at the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad journey that he had been on, how does he respond? Genesis 50, 20, write it down. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. <laughs> Think about that. Joseph said, while there was one path you were living, which was selling me into slavery and ripping up my coat and lying to daddy and all that, while there was this one path that from a human perspective just looked like I'm just part of a bad world, you need to know that there was a parallel path on top of that. There was, a par there was a path of sovereignty in which the sovereignty of God was at work. And while this looked like terrible things going on, I want you to know that God never stepped off his throne that he was thoroughly and actively involved in the, in, the, in the dreams, in the weaving of the coat, in the tearing up of the coat, and the throwing in the cistern, and the selling to gypsies, and the false accusation. God was involved in all of that without any accusation against his character. And the reason he was doing it, the reason that he was in control, is that he could accomplish something better than we could have done by ourselves. Friends, listen to this. Here's the highlight for you today, okay? I would rather have a good God in control of the bad things to accomplish his good purposes than to turn anything in life over to the demons. I can't make sense that God is the God of the crooked stuff, but I would rather have him at the helm, right? Because I know that he can take the cancer, and I know that he can take the job loss, and I know he can take the unfortunate circumstances, and I know that he can take the betrayal of friends, and I know that he can take anything in life, and he has, only God can take the stuff in life and turn it around and go, I'm going to accomplish some pretty great things that I might not have accomplished otherwise. What does he do? What does God accomplish? What are the good things that God accomplishes while he is in control, orchestrating the events of life? Let me tell you three things real quick. Number one, he's bringing about life change. He's making us into the people he wants us to be. It's the reason that James was able to say, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because listen, you know that the testing, that the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things of your life are producing perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature. You can grow up. Be the person that God wants you to be. Peter says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to what he's going to do. He's going to perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He's going to change your life. I heard a lady tell a story a couple weeks ago, and she said, she said, we were driving up in the mountains, and we were having a tour guide take my husband and I up in the mountains. And when we came up in the mountains, there was this clearing, there's this area up in the mountains that had been burned. And I asked my tour guide, I said, hey, you know, uh, was there a terrible fire up here? And he said, no, that was a controlled burn. 
You heard that before? Controlled burn. Sounds like an oxymoron. Controlled burn. And she said, how does that work? And he said, every year the forest rangers come out and they pick certain areas and they actually intentionally set it on fire. The fire is at the will, at the will of the rangers. And the purpose of the fire is because the reason for the fire is that because pine trees need heat in order for their cones to open up and drop their seeds. That's what they need. If they don't burn the forest, then there is no maturity or growth. I think God operates the same way. If there's no burning of our lives, then there's no life change. Life change. Secondly, he's loosening our grip. Because we're holding on. I'm holding on pretty tightly to stuff of this world. Holding on to my money. I'm holding on to my car. Holding on to my kids. Holding on to my house. I'm holding on to that stuff. And God goes, you know what? Just, just, you can't take any of it with you, except your kids, maybe. You may not want to. Your spouse. Right? Just loosen your grip a little bit. And thirdly, I'm giving you a longing for home. I'm creating in you a heart that says, this world's okay. But as we sang this morning, I'm, I got my heart set on mansions of glory. I got my heart set on the presence of God. Do you see that? Paul said to the Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship, church, is in heaven. And from there you eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will one day transform your lowly bodies to look more like his. There is a hope that waits for us. And so what do we do? We rest. We rest. We exhale. And we remember in the midst of it all that God is in control. So we reflect in the midst of the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things. We reflect, and then we face the reality. And then we, uh, along the way, there is a response of gratitude for prosperity and resting and remembering God in adversity. Here's the last thing I want to ask before we close up today. Why in the world does God do it this way? What's the reason? (laughs) Have you ever played the game, if I were God, it's not a good game. If I were God, I'd do it differently. Why in the world does God orchestrate life this way? And the answer, I believe, is to keep us leaning on God. Keep us trusting Him, pursuing Him, loving Him. Solomon says in verse 14, Therefore a man cannot discover anything about his future. Imagine what would happen if you and I could discover something about our future. If we had a crystal ball and we could look ahead and we could predict what the stock markets were going to do and what our kids were going to do and how our marriage is going to end up and whether or not we'd be healed of this disease or not. Imagine if we could look to the future. What would happen? We would become sovereign over our lives, orchestrating the direction of our lives to end up to that particular place, wouldn't we? So God says, I tell you what, why don't you let me be sovereign? which means life will become unpredictable. That's my gift to you, God says. That's my gift to you. He said, I don't like that gift. I'd rather have a pony. You know? I'd rather have a nicer house. I'd rather have a job. I don't like that gift. But God says, my gift to you is to keep life unpredictable, to keep you running right to me. The challenges of life are intended to take God's people and help them chase after the Lord.
Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans said it this way. He said, sometimes God allows us to hit rock bottom so that we can discover that he's the rock at the bottom of everything. That we can discover that he is trustworthy and that he is true. I think it's the reason that Job was able to say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He does it both. Blessed be the name of the Lord because either way, I get him. I get him. And if there's ever any doubt that God uses the worst crises in the world to move us to himself, all you have to do is look at the death of his son. Because the Bible says, listen to this, it was the will of the father to crush his son. The cross of Jesus Christ was designed for what? To take people like you and me. And in the midst of that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, to push us right to God, to love him, to discover that he's faithful, to put our greatest faith in him. So church, I don't know what you're facing right now, but I can tell you this. Nothing's left to chance. There are no accidents in God's economy. If you are facing a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day now or tomorrow, my encouragement to you is to reflect on what is really true. To be comfortable with the reality that God is in charge even of the difficult things, though you may not be able to figure it out. Live with attention. To respond today with great gratitude, with rejoicing in your prosperity, but get ready to rest in your adversity. And at the end of it all, the goal of God is not for you or I to run to Australia, but to run right to Him. And my prayer for you is that God would use that adversity to enable you to look to Him and find Him faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that you love us so much that you don't just let us glide. We would be weak and thoughtless and we would be impoverished. We'd be self-sufficient if you just led us to ourselves. So you interject your grace and your power and your sovereignty into our lives. And we got to tell you, God, sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes we don't like what sovereignty deals us. But today we've learned to trust you more. And to believe that while grievous things happen to life, you are always good. You're always moving things to accomplish your great purposes. To help us as a church to trust you. To trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.